Well, good morning, everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just right on 7.30, and, of course, that means it's time for the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy. First up, we have to welcome back into the studio Tim Sansom from the Diggers Club. Good morning, Tim. Good morning, Pam. How are you? Well, very well. I've had a glorious drive in this morning. Yes, you were saying. Yeah, I, was, I, watched, the, I watched the sunrise. So for all of you who are getting up for dawn service tomorrow, it was a glorious one today. I hope you get one like that tomorrow because <laughs> it was, I had a f- almost full moon. I think the, mo- the moon's just off the, off the full moon. Yes. Uh, mixture of fog and mist. And then as I came up the, the freeway to the city, the sun was bouncing off all of the, the, the city buildings. Oh, right. And I had three hot air balloons with the moon framed in the same picture. Gosh, it would be cold up there, wouldn't it, this oh, morning? I would have thought it would have been cold up there, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, I'm glad it's them and not me. <laughs> so it was a, a glorious start to the day. I thought, what a, what a, um, a wonderful harbour during the season. Fantastic. Mm. Well done. <laughs> we also have to say a very good morning to Greg Balderson. Good morning, Greg. Good morning, Pam. Ah, oh, and you've been marketing as usual? Yeah, yeah, at the markets on the weekends. Um, we've been a, a little bit slow with the markets, so hopefully with a bit of rain it'll... It'll pick up, but uh, oh, there's been some good rare plant fairs too in the last sort of few months. Gingervik and uh, Fernie Creek a, a few weeks back now, but uh, a few months back. Yes. Um, but yeah, Gingervik was a great weekend, so that was uh, excellent a, a couple of weekends ago, and uh, always worth a visit if you can make it there, and, and a, a good little market, uh, rare plant fair. Yes. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's finally bit of rain, so hopefully it'll bring the gardeners out to the markets and, and you know, make a few sales so that it's always good to uh, pay the bills with. Absolutely. And the, and the, uh, <clears throat> the rain also brings the, the fungi on which I'm quite keen to go hunting for uh, at this time of year out in the forest up at Mount Macedon. So, uh, How well do you know your fungi, Greg? Uh, the name's not so well. But I, I'm pretty good at finding them and and identifying I, yeah, I, what not to eat and what to well, eat. Well, actually, I don't don't really eat any. I, I just oh, like okay. taking photos of them. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, so the, some of the fungi that grow up about Macedon are, are weird little beasts. And, right. Uh, um, so I have my little headlamp on because uh, this time of the year it's sort of dark after I finish work. So I go out in the sort of semi darkness with a little headlamp on and. Uh, Do you carry a little mirror? And- uh, I should, I should do. Mirrors yeah. that, that so they can see the spores I should underneath. do, and to take pictures of the yeah. gills and things. But um, uh, it's pretty rough and tumble in the bush. In the bush, there, there's lots of leeches, and um, mm. uh, you know, you're climbing over logs and under ferns, and yes, of course, and co- covered in leeches, and right, and, and whatever. But it's good fun, and and uh, you know, you, yeah, it's amazing when you find something that you haven't seen before, especially after doing it for a few years. You you sort of come across these little. Uh, Weird oddities in the in the understory, and um, you wonder if anyone's ever seen them there before. Right, fantastic. <laughs> I've, I've, I've recently found talking of discovering things. I hadn't discovered it. I discovered what it is. This year, for the first year, I've got um, it's a puffball type fungus yeah, coming yep. up in the backyard. It's it's beautiful. Common name is the horse dung fungus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and it's coming up all through my lawn area. I've never seen okay. it before. Yeah. And it's come up quite early because yep. it's been quite dry. And it's and been coming yeah. up for the last oh, month or so. Okay, right. It's quite a disgusting looking. Yeah, yeah. They, some, some of them, is, uh, I've found a couple of things and, and you sort of think, is that a fungi? Or is, yeah. or is it the dog? Yeah, is it a dog? <laughs> or, or has someone left a weird art installation <laughs> in the forest? That, uh, just, you know, in case someone stumbles across it. Um, and then there's, other, there's a little Mycena interrupter, which is this beautiful blue fungi that when it's dry it looks like a little jewel or, or a semi-precious stone but when it's wet it looks like a blue eyeball like the iris of an eyeball okay. and it's just the most 
uh, amazing-looking little mushroom. And they're only little tiny things, maybe a centimetre or so across the cap. And they grow out of on the south side of old timber that's fallen down in the forest. And, oh, okay. Uh, um, yeah, if, if any, actually, if anyone's interested, there's uh, uh, on my Facebook page, I post a lot of those, the, the pictures of them. Um, and there's also some really good groups, too. The Tasmanian fungi groups are, are probably one of the best in the world, I, I, as, as far as I can tell. Um, there's some great photographers there, and, and the fungi in Tasmania is just amazing. You know, it's, uh, yeah, very, very beautiful uh, things that we don't often sort of think about. Right. Fantastic. We have to say a very belated good morning to Virginia Haywood. Morning, Virginia. Good morning, everybody. That full moon was wonderful, but my fog was thick. <laughs> I don't like driving in thick fog. But, and it was a weird fog because it was foggy high, and when I'd get low, like going through several townships... Like two layers of it. Yeah, mm. it was clear. But I, have, um, I watch... Greg's Fungi on his Facebook page, and it's fabulous. Right. And I think I've got... The horse dung fungi. Well, I've found these little fungi, and I didn't know what they were. They're almost sub- almost globular. round, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. And, and no nice colour, just no, no, a dirty colour. And I sliced one open to get a cross-section the other day um, uh, and checked it out in my fungi book. So I'm pretty, it's, I, I don't know the botanical name, but horse dung fungi was what's I found Yes, I found it underneath my mulch when I was yeah. deciding it's yeah. even yeah. though it's still... The are good fun too, some yeah. of them, yeah. Well, and you the can see when you slice it open that it grades up to the top where the, the spores start to uh, open. It start to open, and yeah. And that's yeah, where you get the puff. Yeah. yeah. Because I've, I've had the white puffball. I mm. haven't got it this year, but I've had that. And I was driving down because Fernie Creek is having one of their... Um, their festivals yep. and I was driving down through the Arboretum yesterday and I saw the you know the bright red with the white oh, the, 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 the Amanita yeah. yes yeah. I saw quite a few of those in the forest and we've had trouble in the botanic gardens because we get um, <laughs> fungi <laughs> under, oh. underneath <laughs> the oak trees and yeah. of course there's poisonous there's poisonous yeah, yeah. You see, I, I had some people picking them the other day I said yeah, Those are yeah. terribly poisonous. Yeah. I wouldn't out, if I was you. Out in the forest, yeah, wallabies actually have a chew on them sometimes. You see teeth marks. Yeah. I think rats and mice might have a nibble on the red part too. But uh, well, with that really red one, with the, with the yeah, white. with the white spots. Yeah, yeah. that some of the ones I looked at yesterday because I stopped and got out and had a look at them, and they had somebody had been marks, eating yeah. them. But I'm so sure it wasn't some people. Very broad, yeah, open-minded wallabies out there. <laughs> 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 Bouncing around yeah, in all directions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are, there, are, there are two that grow in the forests near my house, which I know are edible. Um, and they're, they're quite late this year because it's been so dry. Yeah. Normally coming into sort of Mother's Day is the peak mother's yes, the peak yes. fungi season. Yeah, yeah. We have the slippery jacks and the, the saffron milk cats, yeah, yep. which are the pine. Yeah, I noticed a few of those in the pine forest up at Mount Mass the then, other day. Yeah. And I'm not recommending anyone go out and eat anything they don't know what it is. Yeah. But of all, all, <laughs> all the edible fungi, all the fungi in the forest, the, the, the saffron milk cap, which is orange, yep. and it's quite distinct and, and it bleeds or bruises green. If you snip a bit off, yeah. Yeah. It'll ooze out bright fluorescent orange sap out of it, yeah. and it's like, oh, that doesn't look edible no, at all. But it actually is. is. But it is. And yeah, it's yeah. quite a lovely taste. Don't yeah. eat. Well, I've got something growing at my place, and for the first five years I lived there, I used to get all these Greek people coming and <laughs> wanting to pick. They've stopped coming now, but they used to come for about five years. Yeah. They turn up at this time of year. Yeah. Oh, I see a lot around, around the pine forests and mm. in Arthur's Seat. These people walking around with buckets, you know, on the roadsides. 
getting mushrooms. Mm. So I hope that, well, like, clearly they do know what Hopefully they're doing because they're back again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's why your pick is on yeah. <laughs> We got the wrong one. Yes. <laughs> and no. They, were, no, they were all very elderly too. So, mm. you know, clearly it was knowledge that they'd probably yeah. brought and, with and them to Australia. And that's probably the best thing is to learn from someone yeah. what yeah. to pick rather than trying to learn from Facebook. a book. No, yeah. I wouldn't yeah. do that. <laughs> That's actually, why I just take photos instead of eating them. Yeah, <laughs> wise move, Greg, I'm with you. But um, actually, uh, often at this time of the year, uh, some of the markets, like I think the Slow Food Farmers Market in at the convent at Abbotsford, often have um, uh, a mushroom forager. Yeah, some forager. most yeah. of the markets I do, Zandor, I can't remember Zandor's last name, but uh, it's, yeah, some of the farmers markets I do, he, he picks his mushrooms from yes. wherever he picks them from. I'm sure it's secret. Uh, yes. uh, uh, yeah. secret. Oh, they, they guard their locations. Yeah, they have public yeah. locations and <laughs> private locations. Yeah, yeah. but that's a good knows. safe place if you're wanting to taste yeah. some of these wild mushrooms. Yeah, that's, so uh, as I say, you get that knowledge from people who no. have learnt it and yeah. have been out there and seen the differences because... From due to weather and and conditions, fungi look can look quite, quite different, different, even if yes. it's the same species. And yes. there's different species that look the same. Um, and yeah, it's not worth getting it. Confused, well, that's the so. trouble with the ones under the oak trees. Yeah, they look like field mushrooms. They look yeah. like, they look field, like mushrooms. field mushrooms. And there is, a, exactly. there is a couple that are very close to field mushrooms. Yeah, the yellow staining. Really? Yeah, the yellow staining. Oh. <laughs> yes. Oh, well. And, of course, look out also um, for any notices about, about mushroom foraging because... Some people do run um, foraging uh, expeditions, if I can call it that. Yeah, there was um, one of those up at Mount Macedon too. I, I, I think it might be sold out or it's already been, but there was one at Art Healy on the back of Mount Macedon okay. a, a few weeks ago, I think. Right. Um, so they're, yeah, def- they're great to go along with because yeah. they actually take you out and show yeah. you. So yes, you and you really them. learn that yeah. way. It'd I did be one wonderful. of them in Dalesford. This is probably nearly eight or ten years ago. Yeah. Okay. And it was... Very instructive. Yeah. You know, I went through the whole the whole um, nomenclature of fungi, and it was very particular about which ones you can see, which ones you can recognise as certainly the ones you can eat. Yeah. Yes. And, so, and we, in fact, on that one had a had a little fry up at the end of it. We, oh, tried, yeah, yeah, we tried right. the slippery jacks and the pines. That's where I know. Yeah. That's how I know that's which a, ones yeah, I can yeah, eat yeah, from yeah. experience of someone who told okay. me. Okay. Yeah. Well, there you go. So well <laughs> worthwhile doing yeah. if you get the opportunity. Yeah. Yep. Fantastic. Okay, I'm going to get to the few community announcements that I do have. As Virginia mentioned uh, before, Fernie Creek Horticultural Society have got their autumn flower show on this weekend. Um, So today it is open 10am, running through until 4 o'clock. It's, of course, up at the Fernie Creek uh, Hort Society Garden and Hall there, which is at 100 Hilton Road in Sassafras. The Melway's reference there is 66E12. Now, uh, entry to the show is $5 per person. Children under 14 are free. Uh, there's going to be guided walks of the four-hectare garden. There's going to be sales of rare plants and cut flowers. There'll be a member's photographic display, commercial vendors, refreshments, light lunches, sausage sizzle, and ample free parking. So that's happening today from 10 a.m. through to 4 p.m. Now, two uh, open gardens open today um, as part of the Open Gardens Victoria scheme. Uh, the Nook, which is at 5 Tavistock Road in Mombolk, and also uh, Hillcrest, which is at 2 Brayside Avenue in Sherbrooke. Now, they're both open 10 o'clock through to 4.30. Entry price for both of those is $8. Children under 18 are free. 
And uh, as I say, today is the second day of their opening for the weekend. Pam, there are quite a lot of people yesterday who were coming to Fernie Creek after doing the open gardens. They're oh, all, right. They're all quite close together, so it makes quite a nice little... A good little outing for yes. the day. Excellent. Yes. Okay. And the Fernie Creek garden really is very, very Oh, it's special. stunning, isn't it? Yes. It's great. It would, I would <laughs> imagine they would still have quite a bit of autumn colouring at the moment in the garden. Well, they've got the autumn colouring. A, a huge number of the South African things are in flower. Oh, and okay. they have got some absolutely stunning South African stuff in that garden. Right. And a lot of that was in flower. And then there was this, there was, some of the trees have turned. And there was the yellowest of yellow trees. It was so beautiful. There's a lin- Lindera. Lindera. Yeah. It was so gorgeous. It's I just. The most amazing yellow. I've got two planted either side of my shed to hide the shed. Oh, okay. And I have to about have one. 20, uh, <laughs> about 20 feet tall now, the bigger one is anyway. And the the colour's just amazing. It, go, it sort of starts to turn yellow from the inside. Right. And uh, it's just, uh, there's nothing I know. Oh, I'm sure there are things that colour up as yellow, but that's, no, it's no. just a, the most amazing it's the most, yellow. It's yeah. such a pure yellow. Yep. And it's bright. It's like it glows. It's right. It, it the, gi- the ginkgo. Usually <laughs> you think of the ginkgo as yeah, a bit yeah, yellow. Yes. Yeah. But this but it's is stronger a than that oh, again, much better yeah. yellow than yeah. the ginkgo. And I love the ginkgo. And, and the other good thing about the tree is that it actually flowers on the, on the old wood. Oh, uh, right. sim- Similar to like the, um, the witch hazels and things do. Mm. But it's not a brightly coloured flower. It's sort of a yellowy green sort of a colour. But it's something to sort of lighten things up in late... Uh, winter, early spring. Absolutely. And it's got a beautiful leaf on it that's sort of like I a tulip a, tree yes, sort of shaped leaf. Okay. leaf. So when I saw it, I, I thought, oh, is that a tulip tree? That yeah. was my first mm. thought. But, of course, it wasn't. And I, is it hardier than a tulip tree? Because they are dying all over the place. They're not keen yeah, on... Well, it's certainly, not as, it's certainly it's not as big as a... Mm. Yeah, it's certainly not as big as a tulip tree. But mine don't seem to need a lot of water. But it's, I think it's something that would do better with, you know, making sure it's either got a good root system that's can support it or as I say mine are on the south side of my shed so yes the bases of them aren't in the hot baking sun at any point they sort of grow out into I the think light. I but think I have to find one I just I thought it was wonderful just talking about sort of hardiness of, of deciduous trees in, in our climate I think often it's the case that you get them going for the first five years or so and yeah. then they, they find their roots deep in the yeah, soil yeah yeah uh, and even if we do get some hardier years or harder years, they, they can at least pull through for a couple of years but I've it. really noticed I mean the, there was a stunning tulip tree in the botanic <coughs> gardens it's gone yeah. uh, and around me, up in the Yarra Valley, there's been a number of yeah, tulip been, trees that yeah, have gone. Yeah, tulip so trees and dogwoods, I reckon yeah. they're two that are just turning. And I think they're, they're suffering it's, the it's, change of climate. It's yeah. too hard now, yeah. yeah. But yeah. if you're after one of the Linderas, I think Don T said he had some that he propagated, so you right. might be able to get well, one there. I'll, I will have a look. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Go in search. And, and Stephen used to have them too, but I'm not, he doesn't always carry them either. But yeah. I'll ask him. So, mm. yeah, they'd be the first two places I'd try to get one. There you go. Um, Now, I should also mention that uh, as well as having open gardens, uh, Open Gardens Victoria have got a uh, composting workshop coming up. Now, this isn't until Saturday the 28th of next month, but I'm giving you advance notice. Um, It's uh, it's going to be held in Geelong. It's a ticketed event. Uh, Tickets cost $30.00. There are two sessions um, on the same day. There's a morning session from 9.30 till 12, an afternoon session from 1.30 till 4. And uh, to book a place on, for one of those composting workshops, you go online to Open Gardens Victoria, 
www.ngo.org.au and all the information will be there online. Now, uh, a couple of talks coming up and these are being held by our good friend A.B. Bishop who, of course, has, uh, along with Angus Stewart, co-authored The Australian Native Garden, A Practical Guide. Now, uh, AB will be, um, will be guest presenter at the Australian Plant Society meeting on April the 29th at 8 o'clock. Copies of the book will be available for purchase on the night, and the venue there is East Keelor Airport West Uniting Church. The address is Corner of Roberts Road and Glenis Avenue in Airport West, Melway's map reference there is 15, reference H8. And if you'd like more information, you could contact Anne. Her number is 9336-3228. That's 9336-3228. Now, also uh, coming up on the 3rd of May, both AB and Angus Stewart are going to be uh, guest presenters at the Paran Garden Club. Um, now, the Paran Garden Club meets at Paran Learning Centre, which is at 40 Grattan Street in Paran. Uh, 3rd of May, as I mentioned, uh, starting at 7.30pm. Cost, members of the Garden Club, $2.00, non-members, $5.00. Bookings are essential. And uh, the event will include a talk, book signing and light refreshments. And to book, you need to phone Jenny on 9509. 9978 or Anne on 9827-7753. And that's our Anne who does the outside line quite often. So. That's right, yes. Uh, now, uh, just uh, one last one. Um, Burnley Festival is coming up on Saturday the 30th of April, 10 o'clock through till 3pm. Now, uh, Burnley run this festival each year. Um, and it's showcasing the art and science of horticulture. So the day will be filled with a wide range of free activities. Uh, highlights include an alumni reunion, including a morning tea at 10.30, plant advisory clinics, talks in the gardens, uh, green infrastructure and heritage garden tours, research seminars, workshops for children and adults, and the Friends of Burnley Gardens are holding a plant sale down there on the day in conjunction and that plant sale will run from 10 through till 3. Parking, of course, uh, is in the boulevard there at Burnley. All right, well, it's more than time that we invited our uh, listeners to join us this morning. Do give us a call. We'd love to hear from you, 94190155. Or this morning, we have Liz on the outside line. If you'd like to have a chat to Liz, 94198377. Greg, let's get started on some of your amazing plants. Um, well, I, maybe I'll start with the crocus first. Okay. And, uh, they've actually uh, come out while we've been here, so we've come in this morning. So they're all closed up when yeah. you arrived this morning. It's um, quite exciting. <laughs> it is, isn't it? Oh, so look at that. I'll just put it up there so everyone listening can see. Um, <laughs> there's th- that one's uh, crocus pulchellus. That's a, a reasonably common species crocus I guess, it multiplies really well, pretty easy grower, um, uh, good for naturalising in, in certain areas in the garden and most of the crocus are pretty good pot plants, right. as long, I, I, I find if they do a lot better if you put them in deeper pots though, so um, when I started growing bulbs as a kid I always thought bulbs were in shallow pots, you put them in these little squat pots but uh, a lot of the bulbs actually like 
to be really deep and have a fairly deep root run, and crocuses are one of those things. Okay. I, I, I find and they sort of pull themselves into the ground? A, a little bit. They haven't got the same sort of retractile roots as tulips and, and um, some other species do, but they, they certainly... Uh, I, I think I've read that uh, some crocus in the wild, can uh, you can find... You know, quite a few centimetres down into the ground. Oh, really? Uh, okay. It's, uh, you know, they, they, they like it, um, yeah, sort of 10 centimetres down at least, uh, a lot of them. And some like it deeper and some don't need to be quite as deep. Uh, so, yeah, pool chalice is one of, it's a fairly plain sort of flower, but it's got beautiful little featherings on the inside. And uh, a lot of the crocuses you find that the inside's fairly plain. It's the outside that has the beautiful feathering on it. And the Pulchellus and the Cotianus and a few of the others have got this lovely... It's, it's fairly subtle, but, yeah, these lovely sort of featherings that you can see from the inside. It's so They're sort of like veining, I guess, darker veining. Mm. And the contrast between the little white anthers and the bright orange stigma is quite nice too. Oh, so it's gorgeous. They don't, and the other thing with crocus is they don't last very long. They sort of... They do their thing and then they go away fairly quickly. But... Um, if you collect enough species, you can have one flowering from February right through to October. Wow. Um, and I think you need about 40. <laughs> I found. That's what, yeah, and I got to about 40. Of right. Itself. Greg loves his crocuses. <laughs> they are such a pretty little plant, aren't they? Yeah. Um, and that's the white form of it. So uh, the, my, the autumn flowering crocuses are just sort of coming out. Uh, now, as I say, the first one sort of flowers in February and they... Um, but the season's been really funny this year, and some that flower midwinter or, or late autumn are actually in flower now. Mm-hmm. And some that usually flower a little bit earlier, like the Pulchellus, um, are sort of coming up a bit later than they usually do for me. So it's a really weird season. Um, I've got my Judas tree is going into flower. Mm. Yeah. Now that's only about four months early. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I've, I've seen camellias flowering. Yeah. Too There's camellias yeah, flowering yeah. up at Fernie Creek. Apples and pears I've seen going into precocious flowering. Mm-hmm. And pears often do that too, mm. especially the... Uh, um, the yeah, the ornamental ones. Now, now that's what I'd call a deep pot. So, so yeah, the, the, as I say, that's that's a, that's pro- this is a more long-term planting of, of crocus. Uh, the so the next one's uh, crocus turn forty eye, um, and I started off with one of these bulbs from Marcus Harvey. I don't know, maybe ten or twelve years ago, I guess. And I've got quite a, a little number of them now. And again, the, the actual petals themselves are fairly plain. Uh, it's sort of a, a light mauvey colour, but it's the stigma on these ones. You can see... It is stunning, isn't it? It looks like Dr. Zeus designed it. It's this <laughs> funny it's split... It's tree. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. It uh, does. And they're sort of curly and, and finely threaded. And, and it's also such a really strong orange. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's really hard to pollinate too. Is it? Oh, <laughs> With a little paintbrush, yeah. you've got to... Uh, try and get the pollen on the on the tips of all those little branchlets. It's, uh, Gosh, it's what a, a pity it's not the saffron one because it's such a big... Yeah, well, actually, the saffron's bigger. Is they're, it? They're is white, it? Yeah, they're chunkier than that. Um, okay. So, so that's this is divided. The turn forty eye stigma's heavily divided, um, and the saffron isn't. They're sort of thicker and and much richer colour than that too. So, um, and probably longer. And they also, when they harvest the flower, they pull the whole flower, hopefully right down to the bulb, and split the perianth tube right down and pull the the, the whole the, the whole thing all the way down to the ovary. Yeah. So they try and get them 
as long as they can, sort of, uh, rather than just the bit that sticks out the top. Yes, right. Because um, it's worth a lot, so <laughs> it's worth while getting it's, as much as you can. It's worth more than anything else, virtually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Valuable commodity. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. So, so the crocus turned 40 is usually a, a lot later for me, like four to six weeks later. Okay. And I know that the first one actually flowered about two or three weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And it came out pure white, so I, it was just really strange for something to flower that much earlier and be really, uh, you know, not just a, pa- a paler form of what you see there, but um, uh, it was pretty much pure white. Good uh, heavens! So it's a, a strange season so far for the for the crocus, yeah. Right. Now, Greg, with those the, the, with the two species, the pulchella and the tenfortii, the tenfortii has foliage on it. Yes. Yeah. But the pulchella doesn't. Uh, is there a difference in management, difference in growth type or cultural yeah, it's, management? I think it's probably got to do with where they come from and the weather conditions where they grow mm-hmm. in and what sets them off into their growing season. Um, okay. Usually the earlier autumn flowering ones, the flower comes up before the foliage and then as you go later into the season, the flower comes up with the foliage I see. and then the foliage comes up and then the flower. You know, So the earlier flowering ones... You know, the earlier they are, yes. the, they don't have any foliage. So it, it's almost like the, all the crocuses grow their leaves at the same time. Right. And they usually set their seed at around the same time. But the flowering varies a lot from, as I say, late February right yeah. through to October. Yeah. That's mm. interesting. Mm. Yeah, fabulous. Okay, what else have you got there, Greg? Um, well, I guess we could go to the uh, Tricertus. So I, I, I was looking around at the bulbs last night and... There's some interesting stuff coming on and, st- and some interesting stuff that's just finished, but there's, uh, uh, there's not a lot actually in full bloom at the moment that I bring. So one of the other things I bought is a, a Tricertus, uh, one of the toad lilies. All right. Um, so it's not strictly a bulb as such, but um, it's still a great-looking plant. I don't know if you've seen one of those before. Goodness. Pam, it's, it's sort of almost... I know at the markets a lot of people say they look like orchids. Um, yeah, sort of a little bit awkward looking. But well, when we were down at um, Jindavik, people were saying, "Is that an orchid?" Yeah, yeah, and I get that a lot at the markets. It's, mm. uh, uh, it's so so. It's a woodland plant from from Taiwan, and right. it's sort of this often puts a lot of people off when I mention it to them. But it's a, it's a, it likes a shady, moist soil, rich rich sort of moist soil. Um, but they're pretty tough, and if you give them what they want, exactly what they want. They can actually form quite big clumps, and okay. I wouldn't say they're thuggish, but um, there's, there's they one certainly find their own way anyway. Yeah, there's one near Otto's up in the Dandenongs, and he has. I mean, it just the, they cover a huge area. Yeah, yeah. They so, carpet it mm. under the trees. It's fabulous. so that's uh, this one here is actually a dwarf hybrid, and I don't know the name. I got off uh, Dennis Norgate a, a okay. few years back, and so it, it doesn't get very tall. It only gets to about a foot tall, where some of the other ones can. I really like know. that little one because yeah. it's so tidy, and, and it, it tends to flower as a. It makes more of a show when it flowers. So the, some of the other ones they they pop out a flower here and there, and this one seems to. Um, and, you know, put a flush of flowers on at once. So they're a stronger colour, and, mm. and the flowers are probably actually bigger than some of the taller hybrids as well. Right. It's um, got a really yellowy, limey coloured leaf to it. Oh, that might be my water. <laughs> 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 I, I think out in the ground, it's, 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 it's usually it's, it's usually, usually a, a little bit darker than yeah. that. But but the, some of them, uh, not this one in particular, but some of them do have interesting foliage too, with little speckles and things on them okay. as well. And um, 
but yeah, this this uh, this one. So if you haven't got a spot in the ground for something like this, this one's good for a pot. You can sort of stick it in a pot and have a nice big tub of and it, it, which will clump fill up. up. Yeah, yeah. We, in, a, in a couple of years, that little plant can fill up a you know a ten or twelve inch tub. Okay. And it only gets to a foot tall. Puts on a good show in late summer, early autumn, uh, or early early to mid autumn, I guess. Um, and then when it dies down for winter, you can just tuck it away underneath the tree somewhere where yep. it doesn't get bone yep. dry, but it doesn't really need much over winter. And then, yeah, over the warmer months, it needs a little bit of water. Um, yep. But as I say, in a, in a pot, the shorter one in a pot, you can sit it in a, a little dish of water and, and uh, it doesn't need to be wet. It just doesn't like to dry out yes. or be in hot okay. sun and, and hot winds and things like that. Yep. And growing them in containers is a way that people that don't have the sort of climate or sort yeah, of conditions yeah. that you've got can experience. You can sort of get a, get away with those yeah. things and and you know you can manage the manage the, the environment microclimate. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's a, it's a it's a nice little plant. It's also if you're into photography, it seems it's very photogenic. So it's one of those things you can every time you see it flower, you want to get your camera out yeah. and get, and macro get the macro function. lens on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, or my phone, which is what I. Use. <laughs> In the dark, in the forest. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but it obviously works, and that's all that matters. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Okay, oh, we've had um, uh, a listener ring in on the outside line. <clears throat> Jan has rung in. Uh, she says that she has a mature lemon tree uh, that seemed to die suddenly. When she looked, there were borer holes mm. in the trunk, about a quarter of an inch wide, and about ten feet away from it is a healthy eucalypt with similar holes. She's wondering... Would they actually be borer or would they be something else and what can be done to prevent them attacking again? It does sound like borer. It sounds my, like borer, doesn't it? My first reaction when I hear about the citrus tree in trouble with little holes and, and lumpy stems is the yeah. gall wasp. But I think the size of the hole was how big? A uh, quarter of an inch. Yeah, that's not, the gall wasps aren't that no, big. No, no. So, yeah, I'd say that's borer. Um, sudden death can happen. It's probably been happening for a long time, but, but it's reached a critical point, it, yes. and bang, the tree's gone. Yep. Uh, if it's in, if it's hosting in a tree nearby, I think it's difficult to to manage to eradicate. Um, I reckon the secret there is really to be monitoring your plants all the time and seeing how healthy they are. The borer wouldn't have got in unless there was dead tissue in the in the in the plant itself. So it was probably it was probably the final thing that knocked it over, and there was something else affecting it in terms of its health and vigor before that. Right. Um, that's uh, best guess without yep. seeing it. Yeah. Mm. So maybe if she gets another lemon tree, plants it a bit further away from the the affected eucalypt, and um, try and keep it in a really good, healthy condition. Well, my feeling is it's probably not to do with proximity to the tree. Okay. It's about health of it's the tree. It's about health of, and yeah. vigor. Yeah. And so if if it's a healthy tree that's vigorous and and doesn't have any dead tissue in it, the yep. borer the borer's the borer's not going to go for live not live materials. So, no. Yeah. True. Mm. Okay. All right, hopefully, uh, hopefully you can move on, Jan, and grab yourself another one. Uh, that number again, I um, will remind you, 94190155 to speak to the team on air. Uh, this morning we have got Tim Sansom from the Diggers Club, uh, Greg Balderston and Virginia Haywood, so we would love to hear from you. Or if you'd like to have a chat to Liz on the outside line, 94198377. Okay, Greg, you've got a couple of things up here. Yeah, well, as I say, the other thing, it's I, I think they're emerging as 
probably my favourite genus, I guess, the, the gladiolus. I've always had a soft spot for them uh, as one of the first sort of bulbs I bought as a kid. That would explain and, the big glasses you've got. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, not those sorts of things. I, I don't have many of them anymore. Um, but that's where I was, that's, those were the first ones I grew with, the big hybrid, yep. hybrid gladdies. But um, I remember being sort of eight and nine years old, growing things that were taller than me and, and showing them in the local uh, autumn competitive show and things All like right. that. All um, right. But the one I bought down today is, it is actually a hybrid, um, and gladys can be a little bit promiscuous, so the parentage of that particular gladi I'm not so sure of. Okay. Uh, I think it's often called uh, gladiolus cruentus, but I th- I'm pretty sure it's a delinei hybrid. And okay. I'm not, again, I'm not sure if it's parentage other than that. Um, it's the most beautiful red, mm. um, and it's probably not shown off in here so well because it's a similar colour to the wall behind it. That's so, right, and you're under fluorescent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but it's a, it's a beautiful velvet uh, orangey red, uh, more red than orange, yeah. Before it unfurls, that, those the little velvet and pieces. I, yeah. I, I think that's often lost with the gla- uh, mm. A lot of the flowers, actually, the, the, um, when these things... Uh, so if you've got a plant that's just in the garden to show colour, that's one thing. But when, especially the species ones... It's not just the open flower that creates the interest. It's the whole, you know, as the flower comes out, you look at the arasamas, uh, when, they, when they're opening up from their bulb and unfurling their leaves and flowers, that's some of their most beautiful time when they're, when they're opening, not just yes. when they're open. Yes. Uh, and the gladys are the same. There's, um, uh, even though it's a fairly big block of colour and there's not a lot of subtlety to the flower, there is. There's, there's sort of behind the flower, there's this little flecks of this, uh, it goes from this beautiful deep red, velvety red, through to a, a quite a nice strong golden yellow on, on some of the backs of the petals. And as it's unfurling, you know, the, the new buds look fantastic and the calyxes look uh, quite pretty too. Mm. And it's quite tall, so uh, it's one of the bigger species sort of but it, uh, Yes, because it, it, it's not... It hasn't got that over-the-top showiness. No, no, it's mm. it's uh, it, it, they're not huge, big flowers. They're, they're sort of uh, you know an interesting flower shape, but but they can get up to uh, over a meter tall, and they seem to divide pretty well. Um, and unlike I find the straight delinei, the species one, which can sort of sucker and move around a little bit, this one tends to stay put, and of, uh, unfortunately doesn't multiply as much as oh. the delinei because. Uh, <laughs> I'd certainly like to have uh, enough We'd of love these to have a drift of them, yeah. wouldn't it? Yeah. So I've got a big tub at the moment that has probably about 15 flowers in it, which okay. t- 10 or 15 flowers in it, which is looking pretty impressive at the moment. Oh, but, uh, and are you selling uh, that one, Greg? No, well, hopefully in a few years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as I say, hope, it'd be good if it did divide as well as the other delinei because um, uh, I'd have a few for sale as soon as I can. Actually, I think Lamley Nursery has that one for sale, I think. I as an under... Cruentus? I think so, yeah. I, I think um, it, it, they're not sure what, what so to call it either. So that's Cruentus, because remember we were asked to repeat what we, what yes. we are describing. Yes. So, so I, I think he's got it. it. So it's C-R-U-E-N-T-U-S. Okay. I think. Yes. Um, Which is a straight species, but you, you're suspecting yours is a hybrid. Well, uh, I, I, yeah, I don't know that Cruentus is a, a proper species. Okay, I think so it, and as I say, we're... Um, uh, with the gladdies, because they're a little bit promiscuous and, and their early discoveries sort of didn't go... There's a lot of confusion about... Uh, like, there's certain gladdies that 
have been known as species for a long time and then they've realised they're actually a hybrid of two naturally occurring species okay. and they're not actually a proper species. They're right. a, a, like a first cross between yeah. two yes. species. Origin. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's like Blushing Bride uh, used to be Carneus blandus or something like that and it's got about ten different names and no one's really sure where it came from or what its parentage is. But you can sort of guess where, what gladdies they come from. But Where do gladdies themselves originally come from? Uh, well... I guess the vast majority of them are from South Africa uh, or the southern parts of Africa. Um, Delenii, which this uh, is bred from, uh, I think comes from a little further north where it gets a little bit more subtropical, mm -hmm. um, less frost. It's one that, that usually the, it flowers very late in summer into autumn, a lot of the Delenii, and some of them are much later. And I know my species one as it's just coming into flower some years, the frost will hit it and that's the end of it. Right. So you don't actually get to see the flowers open. You just get to see these bright orange and yellow, which is the mm. normal species colour. Yes. But there's a lot of variation in it too, so it depends where you get it from in the wild, what colour it is. But they would suggest that it's a subtropical or more temperate Yeah, climate. that's right. Yeah. 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 Uh, and it grows through, it can grow in, in summer as well. Mm. Um, and then a lot of the South African ones, obviously, a very similar climate to what we have here. So they're dormant in summer and they flower in spring and go back to sleep I have summer. to say I have got a lot of them in my garden because anything that is dormant in February is handy. It's <laughs> a good garden choice in our climate, isn't it? I think so. <laughs> and there's even a couple that will flower in autumn, uh, and so they're, dormant, they're still dormant in summer, but like the crocuses, they, they flower in autumn and then to put all their leaf growth on after they're flowered. Right. So there's a couple of gladdies that will just send up a flower spike with no leaves. Okay. And they're quite small. Um, uh, there's one flowering now called Brevifolius, which is a quite a pretty little pink gladi that's only a, you know a, less than a foot tall and and uh, a nice sort of pink, and it sends the flower up, and then the flower sort of finishes and hopefully sets seed if you're lucky, and uh, the foliage comes up after the flower. So. Right. And then there's a small group of going back to where they come from. There's a small group that come from uh, around the Mediterranean and Middle East and North Africa as well, and they all tend to be the have a similar attributes, so they all sort of have a similar look. You can tell a, a, the the North the, African, the Mediterranean sort of gladys mm. apart from the Southern African ones because of their shape. Even though they come in different colours and they're a little bit different, they all have similar shape petals. And, okay, uh, and are they yeah. dormant in summer? Those ones are too. Most of them are dormant in summer. It, it it's it's the way to go. Yes, you don't have to water them. Oh, well, there's one, one of the one of the Mediterranean ones. Actually, I think it might be Middle Eastern. Uh, it's uh, atroviolaceous, and I, I've got some growing, but I haven't actually flowered it yet. And it's a deep, dark plum colour. Oh, it's sort of—I think gorgeous. they grow in sort of wetlands, and um, I haven't managed to flower it yet. So I'm hoping I will. But uh, if it uh, grows in wetlands, I'm never ever going to try it. <laughs> but, but some some of those. Uh, so you, you basically, it's a seasonal wetland. So like yes. the gladiolus lilaceus, which mm. is the one that changes colour, which I think I've talked about before, and tristus, which is. Mm you know, can uh, self-multiply very quickly. Um, but they usually stay put. They don't spread. They just stay where you put them. Um, you plant them in areas like a low-lying spot in the garden where in winter the water it's collects. Damp. Mm. So things like gutters, for instance, if you've got a big gutter at the front of the property and you know the council aren't going to spray there or something, you can put these uh, wetland, uh, these uh, seasonally wet plants out there and they'll survive in a lawn as long as you're not cutting it to three millimetres every week or whatever. Um, so, And they'll survive in that wet 
spot in winter, and then when it dries out completely in summer, they're dormant anyway. So they don't and they, mind. And they don't right. mind it. And right. also quite heavy clays because they come from silty sort of soils. Because uh, I find with the daffodils, because that 15, 20 years I lived in London, I used to grow daffodils a lot, and they would grow in grass really happily. But yeah. I, I, when I first um, went to Seville, I planted a whole lot of daffodils in the front well, I can't really call it a lawn. Meadow. Area. <laughs> front area. Yes. <laughs> Cooch and you know, all the awful things it's got there, paspalum. And I just find that they don't survive. I've only now grow daffodils in my garden. And in the garden, yeah, right. they are fabulous. They come back every year. They go dormant over the summer. They just say hi. Mm. We're off to sleep. They're fabulous. But if they're competing with the grass... Don't like it. And, yeah. and with my trees, I've done the same now. I, most of my trees, I have now mulched right around them because mm. that, that hot weather... Somewhere <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> that, hot weather, um, that hot weather grass is just too powerful. Yeah, and right. I guess like, when the grass comes on early in the season, when, they're still, when, the, when the daffodils are still Active charging, right? yes. they're, they're next year's activity. They're, you know, the flower's finished, but they're still they're, charging they're trying next to year. feed up and their that, bulb. Com- that mm. competition is it's probably just where, too much. where it yeah. goes. Yeah. Mm. Goodness. Mm. Okay. Um, Tim, we need to uh, talk about the next issue of mm. uh, the Diggers magazine because it must be due out soon, is it? Oh, look, we've had... A very busy autumn season. We have three catalogues, magazines that come out every or every four or five weeks. So, yes. You know, we've had our initial one, which comes out in March, which was a um, our ornamental catalogue. So effectively, that was a lot of our perennial flowering, summer flowering things, and we had a um, terrific success with a a dahlia called Cafe Olay. I'm not sure if any diggers club members are out there. Uh, we put it on the front cover. It's a fantastic florist flower. Uh, the the head of it is. Oh, it's probably 20 centimetres across. Wow. Uh, and it's a sort of a, um, oh, what is it? It's a, a pale, pale pink, creamy pink. And each floret has, a, well, each flower has about, you know, it has in excess of 100, 150 petals in it. Goodness. It's a real riot of, uh, explosion of, of, of flowering. So that was, that was a real excitement for us early in the autumn. Uh, and we've been through our second catalogue, which was mostly, um, our fruit trees and our um, blueberries and raspberries and cane fruits, so a lot of food plants. But now we're moving into our winter season, uh, and our um, next magazine, our next issue is out around about the 10th or thereabouts of May. Okay. So that's currently the printer. So I've got in front of me here an electronic copy on my laptop, so right. I don't have a hard copy. But there's a couple of things I wanted to talk about in here, because we're sort of picking up on a theme uh, that we introduced last year or the year before uh, and expanding on it, which is trees. Um, so our winter, our winter magazine is heavily focused around the use of trees in the Australian, in Australian gardens. Uh, and we've, we feel that there's a sort of a, uh, a forgotten generation of tree planting, or you know, we've missed a generation. We, we draw our inspiration mostly from the botanic gardens and, uh, and I don't know if anyone has ever been to the Waite um, Arboretum in Adelaide. Uh, there's a, it's a terrific collection. If, if you're ever in Adelaide and you've got half a day, mm. go to the Waite Arboretum. They've got an app on the on on the phone, okay. um, or on your, and it's they've GPSed every tree. Oh, honey. And oh it's, lovely! And it's a collection that's been an arboretum that's been planted for I think it's in excess of 50, 60, up and to 100 years how old. How do you spell Waite? Waite is W-A-I-T-E. Waite Arboretum. There's a Waite Waite Institute, I think. Um, and they don't water it. 
So right. it's it's actually fairly wild. It's not curated like a botanic gardens. Okay. Uh, and so it's a really good place to go and learn what trees do well in a climate like Adelaide, which is Just even higher than yes. uh, and provide sort of luxurious shade, good shape. Uh, and some of the some some of the trees and specimens that will varieties that we've picked up out of there are things that we're st- now starting to put into our magazine. And our okay. Offer. Um, uh, something like the Argentine ombu, uh, the Phytolacca doica is the, the, the plant. Um, just remember ombu tree, Argentine ombu. Ombu. Uh, it's this, um, it comes from the Argentinian uh, and Uruguayan pampas country, so which is, I guess, like a savanna or even like our open woodland kind of country. Yes, yes. Uh, but it's, it's the sort of tree that, that dots that landscape um, and grows in such a way. It's... it's Spanish name is is the Bella Sombra, which means uh, beautiful shade. Right. So it's you know think of a sombrero, mm. a shade hat. This is the shade hat of the of the pampas, uh, and it it grows quite fast. It grows in those conditions where it's really hot and dry, and it provides this beautiful luxurious shade. It, the foliage is a bit akin to a smaller version of the um, the Morton Bay fig, okay. uh, so the Ficus macrocarpa. Yes. But it's, so it's a smaller leaf, but right. sort of leathery, um, thick leaf. Uh, and it gets it's probably its most remarkable thing is it has this amazing root mass. So we think of something like the Morton Bay fig, which has the has the the root system which is all buttressed and um, sort of snake like. Mm. This is like a massive elephant. It's like a big lump, uh, and it's and it's. It's a water storage mechanism, yeah. right, which is part, yes, partly it's drought. Yeah, which it's is big, why it's surviving that's so right. well. Yeah, but it, um, I mean these trees could take well, you know, to get to that sort of size. And there's some beautiful specimens. There's a couple in the Melbourne Botanic Gardens. Sydney has a terrific specimen. Uh, there's a good specimen in the Waite Arboretum, um, and they they grow this sort of big buttress bulby thing, and then they can be multi-branched. So they they're actually once once they're up and established, you've got this beautiful shade. And they're also this sort of um, labyrinth for the kids to muck around. Oh, they're like a living great. playground. Yes. Yeah, it's a it's a wonderful tree, and we've um, well, thanks to some uh, I guess some fo- some forward thinking by Clive many years ago, uh, there are some plants growing at his property in Seymour, and we've managed to collect seed. Uh, and now we've got it. Off, we're offering it this year in our catalogue. So wonderful. Argentine ombu is one to look out for. It's yeah. it's not one you're going to see in in many backyards yet. No. But I'm hoping that in 20 or 30 years we might see a few more in a few more so backyards. So how tall does it get, Tim? Look, it spreads. It spreads more than it than its more height. More than height. Yeah. Uh, it's probably eight to ten metres tall. Okay. And, and, and it will grow to its uh, position. Um, so in the pampas where it's got no competition, it'll be broader. Uh, or in, in the weight arboretum, it's in a fairly open spot, so it's quite broad and, and perhaps a bit taller than that. And the spread will be sort of probably 10 to 15 metres. Okay. Uh, so it's a, it's a, it's probably not one for a, a little inner city garden. No. Uh, but not, but what trees are? I mean, I suppose there are some, there are smaller versions of trees that some but of them. It's a plain tree too, like as in it's made to be out in open yeah, open plain. Plain. and so it's grow like it's not a forest tree. That's right. It's not a forest tree. It's right. You put it in an open area. Yeah, right? open area and let it spread and let it give it some grace. I'm taking a walk in the botanic gardens at two o'clock this afternoon. I'm going to go and look for the ombu. Okay. Well, actually, the that's a good thing to mention is that. The Melbourne Botanic Gardens, if you search up a, a particular species, mm. uh, they have a terrific database, and you can plot it on the map. You can actually type in the, the one you want to see. I am and going then to find, find the, the ombu, and we're yeah. going to go and look at it. <laughs> okay, it's terrific. Fantastic. Before we go uh, and talk about some more trees, Tim, we'll go to our first caller, and we have uh, Olive online down in Frankston. Good morning, Olive. Good morning. Thank you for your excellent show, as usual. 
Um, I've got two questions. First of all, I'll ask a question for a young lady in the street. She's just moved into an old garden that belonged to a lady in our street that it was had beautiful, rare plants. And she was asked me if I could recognise the plant. It's it's a, a bulb about uh, grows about fifty centimetres high in the flower. It's a dark cream. It looks like in between a hippiestrum and a belladonna lily. Uh, she has three big clumps of them, and she's mystified. She can't, I can't find it in my bulb book, and it's just absolutely beautiful. Is it dormant at the moment? Yes. Um, it might be a crinum, maybe. I, um, I'm not so good with the amaryllis, so uh, the amaryllis family. So, um, yeah, like George, George Simler would be a good yes. person to ask. Uh, uh, he's he's pretty good with those. Um, How do you spell that? Uh, C R I N U M. Oh yes. It might might be a crinum. Is it in a shadier sort of spot or? I sun. Full sun. Full sun. Full sun. Okay. Um, yeah, no, it might be. It, it certainly sounds like an amaryllis of some sort. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, it's, it's probably a bit hard to. Uh, well, even if pin you do an online search of amaryllis, um, yeah, uh, you might. It, it like might if, pop if you up do a Google, with some photos. That, yeah. That's how often I find yes. things looking for. If you get the smallest amount of information that you've got, and yep. you try and type it into uh, the Google search images, and, and then that. flick through the images until you find yes, something you that looks like what you got. Yep. And, and if it is, if it's something really rare, it'll be hard to find, yes. obviously. But. Um, uh, if it's something a little bit more common, it, it usually comes up fairly quickly in, in Google search images. And, uh, yeah, and sometimes you can find little leads if you find something that looks like it but it hasn't got the right name and then you put that into the search engine and come up with something a little bit more accurate. Well, I'm glad this young lady's bought it. She's about 25 and the lady that she bought the garden from was elderly and, and she loves gardening. So Oh, good. It's good to know that she's not going to pull everything out. Yes, yes, yes exactly. And tell her to wait. Give it a year yeah, so she actually sees what happens. Through, mm. yeah. Now, the other question is that um, I've got a lot late uh, ripening of passion fruit. I bought a com Two years ago, I bought a commercial plant of orange Nelly Kelly. Now, it's sending up thousands of shoots all over the garden. Mm. It was planted in a very hot spot. And it didn't bear fruit to January, and the fruit is as big as tennis balls. But it's late April, and they're not ripening. And I honestly think sometimes, because of climate change, some plants that I've got old books on passion fruit, which I've read, and I can't find anything that identifies it. Sometimes, because sometimes because of climate change, some of the books or some of the information has to be sort of updated. Yeah, yeah. I wondered whether I should have bought. A seed, uh, waited and put a seed in the garden that didn't have a draft on it. Yeah, I think it's it, like, this is quite a common story with the passion fruits. Is the grafted ones are horrible? Uh, they, they the graft is a very vigorous plant. It's it's usually uh, passiflora. Well, it's two things actually. Yeah, uh, it's usually passiflora cerulea, the blue passion fruit, which is a hyper vigorous uh, rootstock. Um, and doesn't produce much of a fruit that's of, of use. Um, and sometimes I'll use the banana passion fruit. But from what you just said, you said you bought one that was the gold. Was it the gold form? The gold? The golden Nelly Kelly. Golden Nelly Kelly. Because sometimes golden Nelly Kelly is actually the, the banana passion fruit. I have seen that sold. Um, I suspect what is happening is the graft is taking... It's the, it's the root It's the understock, is, yeah. Yeah, and that is difficult to get yeah. rid of. Yes. Um, so it's probably not that the intended 
variety is 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 reverting or changing in character. It's more about the rootstock being now very dominant. Yes. In fact, I would always recommend um, that you, if you're going to plant passion fruit, plant a seedling. I yeah. agree. I would never ever buy mm. a grafted passion fruit because of what the understock is. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of people buy the, the, the grafted ones that we see quite commonly. And look, if you know what you're doing and you can recognise what the rootstock is, and it's quite a different leaf too, it's quite mm. a sort of a, a wiry leaf, yeah. and, you can, and you can control it from the start, then it won't get running. But there that's, was one that's a in challenge. My, there was one in my place when I came, which I think 13 years ago, and I still haven't got rid mm. of. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and I try. And I, and I planted about uh, 18 months ago, so spring last year, a seedling black passion fruit, uh, just on its own roots, uh, and it's in a nice, cool root run, but it's growing on my shed, and I've had half a dozen fruit this year. Okay. So that's in the second year I've had half yes. a dozen fruit, and it's powering around my shed. Next year I'll get twice that, if not more. So you don't have to get a grafted one to get decent to cropping. Get and the seed yep. ones have got pretty good fruit on them. Yeah, yeah, the yes, fruit's fine. Yes. It's, it's, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's some variability because yeah, they yeah. are seed grown, yeah, yeah, but yeah. Um, they're perfectly acceptable. They're and you put it in... Really Good, yeah. Edible. Yeah. yeah, there was plenty of juice in them. <laughs> yeah. And I've got a, I've got a, a family of passion fruit lovers in my house yeah, and yeah. I, didn't, I didn't actually get to eat one of them. <laughs> but the reports were good. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but the important thing is you put it with a cool root run. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that, that does matter. You know, I, I actually, I gave one to my neighbour at the same time. Uh, and so he's you know, literally 20 metres away. Uh, and his has not performed anywhere near as well because he's in quite a sunny spot. Where right. So it's coming up. Mine is, is growing into the sun, mm. but the, the, the root the line is cool. cool. Yeah. yeah. Treat it like a clematis. Yeah. yeah. Um, the other thing is, um, oh, oh, you're gone. No, no, we're no, here. No, no, we're here. Uh, what will I do with a fruit that's big? It's about as big as a tennis ball. It's absolutely beautiful to look, but I've been told that it's poisonous. Okay. What colour is it? It's dark, dark green. Dark green. Yeah, I... If it is, if it is the, and I know, I've never seen the um, the rootstock. No, they don't the usually form. Fruit. Yeah, I've never seen them go through no. the fruit. Um, but if it is the blue one, the Karulia, I would wouldn't be eating it. Yeah, I'd be chucking it out. Yeah, okay. Mm. They say it's poisonous. I, I, I don't know if it's poisonous or not, actually. But it's not going to be worth your no, while trying no, to. It's not what you want. It's, no. not the, it's not the black passion fruit you're after, or the or the gold passion fruit that you're after. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for your information. It's been very, very, very good and something I can work on. Okay. Bye. Bye. That number, if you'd like to join us this morning, we'd love to hear from you. The number's 94190155 to speak to the team on air. Or if you'd like to have a chat to Liz on the outside line, 94198377. Back to the trees. Tim. Oh, Okay. <laughs> Actually, I've got a, um, another one I want to talk about, which uh, is a, a bit of a segue to our, from our discussion on um, fungi earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, for all of, you, all of you foodies out there that are besotted with, uh, with truffles, we are offering this time, this year, um, whole oaks, which are infected or inoculated with, with the, 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 the truffle spores. Okay. So these are, these are tube stocks, so they're only little plants. Yes. Um, but we've, had, we've worked with a, a grower, a commercial grower, who's, who does the, well, he calls it infection because it's, it's actually a process, a quite a, a particular process where they are <clears throat> attaching the symbiotic association of a mycorrhizal fungi, which is this one's tuber melanosporum, and that is the, the French black truffle. So this right. is the one 
for all those people who know about the um, <clears throat> the, the huge value of these yes. is that you've got to have a little dog or a pig that, that sniffs that them out sniff and they out. dig up these truffles <laughs> and they're under particular trees. Yes. Um, and talking to talk, talking to our grower who's who's supplied these for us, there um there's something that's quite a growing industry in Australia. He's he's finding that there's quite a bit of interest and quite a bit of success if the, if the process is done correctly because the natural mycorrhizal fungi associations that are in Australian soil are not as competitive with, with oh, these varieties, uh, right. these, particular, these particular tubers, uh, um, fungi in our soil. So if you can have a, an area where you can establish it, uh, and it has to be inoculated at the seedling stage. You can't have a, a large a, tree and then, and then inject it. the ground and yeah. inoculate it. You yeah. must do it when it's young so that the root, root systems can develop together. Okay. So if you've got an area that's fairly open and got a spot where there's not a lot going on and you can establish these trees from a young age, you can actually have some success in growing your own there's truffles. A, there's a couple of uh, plantations up around Mount Macedon, I think. There are. There's, in, there's in one the in Kerry. I know there's one in the Kerry Valley and uh, there's one somewhere else too, I think, up there. Yeah. Um, is there a certain... I think uh, where they where they grow in Europe, it's quite alkaline soil. Is there, yeah. is there, is there conditions you need to add to the soil to, yeah, to get them that's, to perform? That's true, actually. Well, well, firstly, I'd say it's about the host trees and yep. having the trees that are vigorous in our landscape that are going to work. Which, so we've picked the holm oak, which is the Quercus ilex, an evergreen uh, Mediterranean oak tree, uh, and it establishes quite quickly uh, and will grow in our conditions they're quite really well. Tough, aren't they? Yeah. And they're tough as yeah, they're, I mean, talk about something that doesn't need summer watering and mm. provides a nice shade. An evergreen oak with the small leaf, mm. uh, quite a hardy tree. But yes, uh, um, so depending on your soil, uh, if you've got highly acid soil, yeah. it's the sort of thing where you want to bring your lime, pH down, a bit, bit of lining, and that'll actually and that'll actually help um, sort of suppress the natural fungies that are in there, yeah. the natural mycorrhizal, the natural. Um, uh, the fungies that are in the soil, yep. so to allow this one to establish in there. And once it's established, it'll hold. Its it own. holds its own. Yeah, that, yeah. That's that's the theory. So, I, I think there's a lot of Australian native truffles too, but I don't know if they know whether they're edible or not. No, <laughs> I cases, think that's right. There's not as much I, demand I, for that. I, I think there's. Uh, um, I think I read somewhere there was more Australian native uh, truffles than there were anywhere else. Yes. <laughs> on the planet, just about. Yeah, there's. A, there's and it'd be classic that we 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 have we them, but we don't know about. We don't them. know about them. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I'm sure there'd be some edible ones. And, of course, the Aboriginal population would have known exactly, exactly. which ones, which yeah. ones were edible. They had 60,000 years of playing <laughs> yeah. around. So this is, a, I guess, a, a, a European import into, yeah. into Australia, yeah. um, but also at the same time something that we know has a... Uh, um, a market or yeah, has, yeah. A, has a value. And what's known. what? How long between when you buy and plant one of these to when you can get some truffles off? You, you got a bit of a wait. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're not going to be digging well, up you do. It's three thousand dollars worth of nuts or whatever, isn't yeah. it? It's, it's, so so that, a well, the tree will have to establish. Uh, um, it's a, gran- a grandchildren tree. <laughs> look, it's probably not that long actually, because I was talking to the grower and I went and visited his property. He's up in Jimbrook, um, and he was showing me trees that were maybe they were five to ten years old yep. and they were starting to get some some truffle some, action yep. and when you see under the tree when it is established and it has a has a, a truffle establishment in the roots as well yep. so they get a thing called a brule around the around the the ground which is basically like it's the french word for burn mm. and it and it's and it's the all the 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 grasses and uh, vegetation around the trunk don't grow as well when they're suppressed by this fungi so they okay. you know when you've got a, a tree that's that's got it and working because you see this brulee. Yeah, okay. Now, in this, situ- this situation, we've got, you know, we've, we're, this is for the home gardener to have a go at, you know, growing their own truffles. 
Um, and, and there are commercial operators like our supplier who do field plantings of these sorts of things. So we're not setting up for, for the commercial operators. No, no, we're, no. We're setting up for people who are interested in growing yeah, their yeah. own in the backyard. Yeah. I want to put down what, It's a beautiful tree. So Yeah, that's what I was going to say. They're a great tree anyway. Yeah, so it's, it's a beautiful so tree. tree. So you get, you get the combined and you can, you know, if... if in just even five or ten years, yeah. you get a truffle. That is an absolute it's bonus. You get a wonderful yes. tree above yes. it. Well. Really, a cherry on top. It's a yeah. truffle underneath. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, so one would be more than enough. Yeah, one should be enough. I think, and and it's a bit of a, a bit of a roll of the dice when you have a, a forest or you have a plantation. The same tree won't produce a truffle each year. Yes. So, if you've only got one tree, which is most people could only fit one tree in their That's backyard, right. um, it probably won't do it every year. So, you, it's going to be a, you know, it's going to be a bit of a. It's roulette. a fun thing. It's a fun thing. Yeah. Yes. But you know, <laughs> imagine the joy of you know five or ten years down the track when you're. Pottering through the garden and you sniff out a massive truffle. Well, that's why they go and tell all your friends I grew this. That's myself. why they're expensive though too. Like the morels, you know, right. you don't have acres of them growing in in a horse paddock. You you find a little clump here and there, and that's why they're worth a fortune. Yeah, same with truffles. Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. Mm. Yes. Oh, what fun! So a bit of fun. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, we should go to our next callers. We'll first up. We go to our good friend Tony in Nutfield. Good morning, Tony. Hi. Good morning, Pam. Um, about a month ago, you mentioned there was a new book by Alan Gilbert. Yes. Um, sadly, he just died as well, I think. That's right. Um, I wrote down, it was just called Grafting and Buddy. Was that its full title? Because I'm having difficulty in trying to purchase the book. Oh, right. Um, well, it's produced by uh, Highland House. Highland House. Yes. yes, that's right. Um, look, if you give me a couple of minutes, I think I might have the... The actual reference to it, but I'll have to uh, dig it out from my bag, which is behind me. But um, if you can stay listening, I will dig that out in a minute and um, I'll mention it. All right. All right? I, you know, I went into that good bookshop at Eltham and, and Mira couldn't find it. Uh. Right. Well, as I say, if she'd gone to the um, Highland House website, she would certainly find it there. Yes. But, um, look, I, I, will, I will look it out um, in a few minutes when I get the opportunity and I'll, I'll mention it on air, the full title. Yes, please. Okay? Thank you. All right. Bye. And uh, next up we have David, who's in Cheltenham. Good morning, David. Hi, good morning, team. Uh, we've got a Callistaman. We've got three, actually. One's about four metres tall and um, one's about five metres tall and the other's a small one. One of them gets the sawfly, the Callistaman uh, caterpillars, every year. And we've got a terrible infestation this year and I keep shaking the branches and they fall off and they climb back and I was going to sprinkle some uh, coffee grounds around underneath and clear the leaf litter away and things try and stop them. But my wife thinks that we should maybe prune the top metre, the outer metre, entirely away uh, and I'm not too sure how much I should cut back a callistamin. And also, um, uh, why is this one callistamin getting it and the others don't have any, they've never had an infestation ever, and this one gets it every year. Is, is that one not performing as well generally, do you think? Is it, is it's a, it's a, it's, look, uh, the, the two big ones are about 25 years old. Uh, one's on the east, one's in the west. The east one that's getting the infestation. It's next to a park, um, and um, and it's certainly a more unhealthy specimen. I don't know which came first, the sawfly yeah. or 
poor health. It could be a positive feedback loop. It might, and then, it might and be then, just getting worse each year because they keep hitting yeah, it. Look, and then they go back to it because it's the one that's susceptible. Yes, yes it, look, right. it could be. And Which is probably um, protecting the other two trees. And it's, yes, it's the and full it's, guy. It's a, good, yeah. it's a different species too. Okay, that, that, that could be partly about it. It could yeah. be its vigour is less what, because it's a different species. Yes, my real question is this one of pruning. Um, sh- uh, my wife was talking about taking... Uh, virtually a, a third of the tree away, uh, all the outer stuff. Um, what do you think about that? I don't well, mind doing it, provided we don't kill the thing. I think there's, I think there's two, 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 there's two questions or two components to your question. There, the first is, will the pruning overcome the sawfly issue? If that, if, if your motivation for pruning them is to to knock the, the sawfly, I'm not sure that's going to make much difference. As soon as it regrows, it'll probably get reinfested yeah. again. It'll have healthier growth, or yeah. you know, more, more succulent, more succulent juicy, growth. juicy growth for the things to get onto. Yeah. I think the other thing about then the second part being about actually actually pruning a calistamin. I think the what you'd want to bear in mind is the health and vigor of the plants. If they're 20 odd years old they may be starting to wane in vigour. They're not the longest-lived plants mm. around. Um, yes. So, if, But that's kind of your judgement is if, the, if it's a healthy, happy thing that's got a well-established root system and it's growing happily each year, it will take a prune. There's no, no trouble with that. And, and look, if it's, a, not, if it's something you might be replacing anyway, giving it a good hack into, is not, you've got nothing to lose. Mm. It's, it's, it's either it. if, it, if it's bad and you want to take it out, you've got to dig it out anyway, so you may as well hack into it and see and, what happens. And calistamins don't mind a prune. Yeah, I, I give one of mine a prune down to almost ground level sometimes, and within a ah, year or two it's, right, up to, that, it's back up to that, two and a half metres. Yeah. But right, I'm not sure if all species are like but that. But if it's a healthy plant, yeah, like it, if it's it got the vigour and a good root system that's well established, oh, it'll surely take yeah. that sort of pruning, and then and it actually we, makes them a better plant. Yes. Yes, well, look, thank you. The, our thought was that if we... Uh, I think the thought my wife's thoughts were that if we gave it a really good prune, a heavy prune, it might actually be a healthier plant. Yeah, as I say, I don't think you've got anything to lose if it's, uh, yeah, so it maybe yes, give, well, give that true. a try and if it doesn't recover or it looks terrible or then maybe think about uh, um, planting. As you say, there's, they've, got, they've got a, usually got a, a fairly short lifetime, a, a lot of those uh, things, but if you do coppice them regularly, it can extend their lifespan and they indefinitely look, and, and they, and they, they look more vigorous right? and young and they flower better and... Um, so, yeah, my, as I say, my red calistamin at home, uh, when I get round to it, gets pruned off at basically ground level. And within a so year, can, it's back up to cop- a metre and a half, two metres. So you can actually coppice a calistamin? Uh, well, my one you can, yeah. I'm not yeah. sure if they're all the same. I'm sure there's, there might be a few species oh, well. that don't like it so much. But, but uh, as I say, if it, if it looks terrible and, and the, the other option is digging it out, you've not really got anything to lose. So yeah, it, it might true. be worth a, worth a shot anyway. And yeah, like, like, thanks. Well, the other thing I'd say is, is it's about timing of cutting, um, and, you, and you're probably best to, to cut it late winter, early spring when it's about to go into uh, the growth yeah, phase. That'll give us active, its best yeah. Yeah, when it goes into active growth. That'll give us its, its best chance of recovering well. So you think don't prune it right now? No. No, I wouldn't. Not yet. So like we're about to go into our sort of you know dormancy you know especially in a frosty area too because I don't think mm. they the fresh young growth on that yeah. probably wouldn't appreciate frost too much. <laughs> do it, <laughs> do it when the when it's getting warmer. Okay, thanks very much. Okay, right. bye. Bye. Right, uh, Tony from Nutfield, if you're listening, I have found that information. <clears throat> the actual title is Grafting and Budding for Australian Gardeners. 
Um, as you know, it's by Alan Gilbert, uh, published by Highland House. Now, there is an ISBN number, which will help um, Mira to uh, trace it for you at the bookshop. I'll give you that number if you've got paper and pencil. The number is 978-186-447-1236. So I'll read that again. It's the ISBN number, which is 978-186-447-1236. And that's Grafting and Budding for Australian Gardeners by Alan Gilbert. So... Hopefully that will help you locate the book because it, it's certainly excellent. All right, uh, that number, if you'd like to join us this morning, we are running through until 9.15, so we've got uh, plenty of time for you to still jump on board and give us a call. We'd love to hear from you, uh, particularly as we've got um, Tim, Tim Sansom. I can't get my tongue around it this morning, Tim. <laughs> Tim, of course, is actually Director of Horticulture there at the Diggers Club. Uh, Greg Boulderston and Virginia Haywood all in the studio uh, so the number is 94190155 or to speak to Liz on the outside line, 94198377. One thing I was really delighted in with the, the, the last um, magazine that's come out, Tim, uh, and you mentioned that it was featuring um, um, edible plants, uh, particularly fruit trees and canes, and, and I was delighted to see that... Um, they had quite a feature of different um, dwarf dwarf fruiting trees. Yeah. We've, now. We've, we've been running that for a few years now, um, principally. But, but you've grown in, yeah. in what's available, which yeah, is fabulous. It's, it's, um, it's, always a, it's, it's always an exciting one for me, actually, because it's one of my passions is uh, um, heritage fruit. Mm. Um, and we recently had, or well, two or three weeks ago, we had a, an apple festival at the Garden of Sidearth where we, had a, we set up a table where we had, I think, about 20 different uh, apple varieties. Um, we had a taste test, and we had all the people people coming through, and it was, it was fascinating watching people's faces as they got to the cider apples when yes. they were eating them fresh. <laughs> well, I think one guy explained the taste. What he said, "Oh, that one's a bit grabby," <laughs> <laughs> and that was their sort of the facial expression. But we've, yeah, we've. I guess we've been refining or, or constantly rejuvenating our, our list of heritage apples, apples in particular, because we're putting them onto the dwarfing rootstock. Yes, we have an espalier orchard up at St Earth, which we put in about seven or eight years ago, or probably a bit longer now. Uh, and we're showcasing how you can grow uh, heritage apples in a small space with with some simple training techniques around espalier. Mm. Um, so you know, yeah, we've. I'm always kind of picking around where um, I can pick up heritage varieties, and unfortunately, it's not as they're not as readily available. They're actually becoming more now. There was most of the heritage fruit varieties were coming out of government research stations like Bathurst and down at Tassie at the um, uh, at Hewan, what's it called, the Grove Research Station. Oh, yes. um, but they've kind of gone by the wayside, or they've been subsumed by private entities. But um, luckily, there are some good collectors out there that are, that are still... Um, and a couple of very active um, Heritage Fruit yeah, Societies. Yeah, the Heritage Fruit Society in Melbourne, and they, they're through, through Petty's Orchard, and we've also got Yalka fruit trees. And uh, the one down in Werribee, yeah, too. And we're, yeah, yes. and at, the, at, at Werribee, which is at the, the mansion. Yes. And so one of the problems with apples is that they've been bred so much to increase their sugar content, mm. so that they're becoming actually in a... In a world of obese people who are suffering from diabetes, they're becoming confectioner. Yes, they're becoming much less um, good for you. And yeah. so, if you can get the older apples that have not mm. been laden with um, mm. fructose, it was interesting in that in that that um, taste test that we did at um, at St Earth a couple of weeks ago. What were the 
most uh, appealing to people. And it, it, people have different palates. Oh, of course. But we, a variety that we'd got hold of from an orchard down in uh, Main Ridge, which I had not come across before. It was, uh, it was called uh, uh, Clarence, I think it was called. Um, and it was, it was by far away the favourite. But it wasn't the sweetest. No, it was it was one with more interesting texture and and, and, and flavour and, and, and sh- a bit and of sharpness. sharpness yeah. Yeah. I love a bit of sharpness. And there's another one called Sturma Pippin, which is known as a, a cider apple principally, but it was a great fresh eater okay. and a beautiful looking white apple. Right. So it was sort of a, a white skin. Yes. Uh, and you know, and a crisp. Uh, it was it was a bit of a surprise packet for us actually. Right. Mm. So from those taste tests. A number of those varieties we already carry in the line that you saw. In I, the was lo- I was looking at the apples in Woolworths yesterday, knowing that I was going to drive down here really early in the morning. I thought, well, I want something to eat in the car, and I looked at those apples, and I just didn't want to buy any yeah. of them. I, yeah. I, I actually had the same experience yesterday. I bought, I was popped over to get the snack, and I, I tried one of those jazz apples, which is the, mm. well, I think it's a New Zealand variety that's been bred and has now been taken up by a lot of commercial orchards. And it just had no depth. It was just like, being slapped in the face with a bit of sugar and that was about it. Mm. Yes. There was, there was nothing They, they all tend to be huge too. And yeah, they're, nice they're sort of blown up yeah, and watery. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah. and there's, I think like the little, you know, the snow apples. Oh, yeah. I lo- just, I've got a little, snow apple. They're and you beautiful. Just grab, yeah. And if you're hungry, you have two or three. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and if you're not, you just have one. There is no yeah. apple experience better than a snow apple picked from the tree first yeah. thing in the morning when it's cooled from the night. Yeah. You, you bite it open and it is crystal white yeah, inside. Oh, it's stunning. Yeah. They're beautiful, beautiful yeah. apples. And, and as I say, the, the size, you know, they get these huge things mm. and, you know, just have something small. You don't yeah. have to eat this huge apple. No, <laughs> size isn't a marker no, of, no. Of, of improvement. Of improvement, no. yeah. yeah. So <laughs> it's, a, it's nice to have something that, you know, you can sort of get through and yeah. it doesn't go brown because you can't eat it all at that time and, yeah. and you go back later and it's, it's sort of all brown. Yeah. <laughs> Well, the other the other great thing about the the extended range of apples you're offering is that you have more more choice as to what you're going to use for for yeah. your cross pollination. Yeah, you have more choice for that. You have so and you know and we put in our magazines which are the pollinators so you can figure out your pollinating partners. The other thing that's important is when they fruit. Uh, so we put a guideline in there that says you know the early mids and lates. Mm. So you can you can set up a little orchard uh, in a you know an area that's four or five meters long. You can put mm. four or five trees or three to four trees, and you can have them so they cross pollinate each other. So you're guaranteed to get fruiting, and you have an, an early, a mid, a and a late. Uh, so you can have yep. fresh fruit through the summer. Yep. Or or if you have a cooker like a Bramley seedling or a Granny Smith, then you can have that for late in the season for cooking and storing through the winter as well. Yes. So with a bit of that knowledge, you can figure out what what's going to work best for your garden. And you're getting varieties that are so much better than the supermarket ones we've spoken about. Oh, gosh, yes. They may not always store as long because they don't go into... Um, cold storage and ethylene managed storage, but they're they're so much superior in flavour. Absolutely. And I always say, and I was saying this to people at the at the Sud Earth Festival a couple of weeks ago, that if you're eating an apple and it's September October, clearly it's been in storage. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. You know, this this is not naturally occurring no, at this time not. of the year. <laughs> and they look like it. Yeah. Yeah, that's the problem. Yeah. But but fantastic to you know because it means that the people who do have a very small backyard can still now actually grow some yeah. fruit. Yeah, and you can even you can even put them in a pot. Like yes. I've, I've got a cherry tree that I've got in a in a large container, uh, and I, 
it takes a bit longer to prune them or, or establish their framework when they're in a small size and there's a, a method called the Spanish bush training method for for um, for cherry trees, which is basically just creating a lot more uh, spurs or fruiting wood lower down in a branching habit. Right. But it's really well suited to pot culture, and you mm. can get a you can have a cherry tree. A Stella cherry is one that we sell. It's a self pollinator, so you can have one on its own in a pot on a patio, and it'll produce it produces. You know, a, 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 a sizable punnet of cherries every Christmas for us. Fantastic. And it's only a little little tree. And it's easy to net. And yeah, you, get yeah. the, you get the blossom to admire yeah. as well. Uh, you get the blossom. It's right and out the, the back door. Too, the autumn colour's yeah. just dropped yes. off now. The only snag I've got is that the dog actually likes them. Oh. <laughs> and she eats them through the net. Really? <laughs> yeah. yes. Good heavens. I my dog thinks well, she's I, a human. <laughs> the foxes adore my grapes. Yeah. Foxes love fruit. Actually. They yeah, love blackberry, grapes. So yeah. Always, yeah, yeah. You know it's blackberry season when you see uh, blackberry fox poos everywhere. Yeah. Yes. Fox, in fact, <laughs> this is a, a digression, but fox cats are really interesting to see what they, what they eat. eat. And they yeah. do eat a lot of fruit. <laughs> you see heaps of seed in fox yeah. cats. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So, so your trees are ver- you're very much looking at trees for this. Yeah, into our into our, um, our change of season, um, but so also in for for global warming. Oh, absolutely. I think I think you know there's a we've got we're sort of opening a discussion around what trees to plant, uh, and you know that if our inspiration isn't necessarily to grow Australian native eucalypts, which has been often the the, the mantra around how you grow an Australian garden. Um, we're looking at things like these from similar parts of the world, like the, the holm oak, like the ombu, but also looking at what are our Australian native evergreen trees, mm. um, sort of from the, the northeast, um, uh, sort of the, the high country around northeast New South Wales. These, some of these trees, like the red cedars, uh, the black bouillon, uh, and the, the crow's ash, these plants, these trees, are native Australian trees that have terrific potential to be shady trees in the Australian climate and even growing much further south. I mean, all three of those trees exist in the Melbourne Botanic Gardens. They exist in the well, Adelaide Botanic they're Gardens. Very con- I mean, at the Melbourne Botanic Gardens, they're very concerned to actually change. Yeah, that's right. Because we've got a lot of trees that are riparian that are growing yeah. up by the government house. They shouldn't yeah. be there. Yeah, and you know, you wouldn't replace like with like no, because you want the climate is changing take, so much. It will take a lot more drought and heat. But I'm still find- provide that luxurious shade. shade yes. yeah. I'm finding in, in my garden things, I mean, I find the Styrax japonica, mm. which I wouldn't have expected to be as tough as. Yeah. But it is, whereas I've got other things that I'm just going to have to take out because that's, they're not surviving the summers. And I think that's, but the Styrax, that's vital. and it's such a beautiful tree. We have to look around at what trees are succeeding in, I mean, we've had some, well, it's the, the, the 10 ju- hottest summers on record and the in Judas the last tree. 12 years. Yeah. The Judas tree just bounces through every summer yeah, and it's beautiful wonderful. flower in the spring mm. um so i think yeah and we've got a selection of trees that we're working on and we will keep continue to work on uh we're beginning a collection of trees ourselves at our preservation garden down in dramana um, but most of our inspiration has been taken from places like weight or the botanic mm. gardens mm. um things that are successful in our climate that are the, i guess the new breed of trees um i, I see th- a lot of um Capital pear tree, which is an ornamental pear, as street plantings. I think there's a there's a real paucity of knowledge on in yes, town planners around what is. trees are the best trees to plant. I, I was talking to a grower about that particular ornamental pear, the capital, recently, and I was like, why are they planting them on on roads everywhere? You see them mm. on roadside mm. verges mm. everywhere, mm. Um, and they're not a particularly good shade tree. They're not a particularly drought hardy tree, and his theory was that 
because their caliper, the trunk size, only gets to a certain size, that it reduces the damage that people do when they drive into them. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the main criteria for why they're choosing those oh, trees. Oh, dear. And I thought, well, that's a bit backwards. A In bit Clifton Hill, they're planting Tristaniopsis. Yeah. Which I find, I mean, I yeah. actually asked Roger Elliott about yeah. it, I remember, years ago, because the Tristaniopsis in the Botanic Gardens are absolutely huge. Yes, yeah. And yet, all through Clifton Hill now, you've got Tristani- Tristaniopsis yeah. in the... And, and they are turning out to be lovely street trees. Yeah. but for, so, the, so they've uh, done something in yeah, the breeding. And there is some breeding of those trees, mm. yeah, and then they're getting... And that's, that's, that's a, like a positive move, is mm. that people are starting to think about how trees... But see, at my house, work. I've got this huge and stunningly beautiful gum tree on my northern side... But it means I get no sun in mm. winter. Yeah. You know, I want deciduous. Yeah, and there's, then there's we've well, we've got a, a good couple of oaks in this in our our catalogue. In fact, we've got the, and this is not quite that example, but we have the Virginia oak, which is actually a, it's actually an evergreen oak that grows in the more subtropical regions of the, of the United States. Uh, it's not one that grows very commonly in Australia, but I think it's got great potential in our more temperate climates. Um, but it's not a deciduous. But there are things. There are other oak trees uh, that would be fantastic in mm. your situation mm. there, where you get all the all that luxurious shade. Yes, you and get then you fire get fire protection. Yeah, and then you get the sun through in the winter time. And I've got exactly the opposite. I've got the most beautiful gum tree, which is a fire risk so close to yeah. the house, and it and stops the winter mm. sun. And if we want to be growing some of the things that Greg's got here, we need to be creating a, a you know, a forest environment. Yeah, yeah. You know, yes, exactly. Got, one goes with the other. If we're going to grow little treasures have, at ground level, I have to say that one, that yellow one, is absolutely well, beautiful. Before we go to it, we do Sorry. have a caller to get to, so we'll go to Dave, who's down in Frankston. Good morning, Dave. Yeah, good morning. Um, just a query for the the tree man you got in today. I've got a liquid amber that's 20 years old, and I've got a pear tree that's 20 years old. I don't know if it's climate change or whatever, but the liquid amber's got tiny little leaves on it, on all the branches, and the pear's got tiny little leaves on, on it, on its branches, but they're not increasing in the size of the leaves. It's almost like the two trees are in suspended animation or something. Is mm. that because of the weather conditions? So you're saying that the leaves didn't get to full size throughout no, the whole season? No, they're, they're just tiny little leaves all over the liquid amber, but they never got the full size. Wow, and they're now colouring up and about to drop and everything? No, they're just, they're just, the tree's just full of tiny little leaves out of all the branches, but miniature and same on the pear tree like it's miniature little pear leaves on the pear tree it's almost like they're suspended yeah, and so the trees are 20 odd years old do you it, think do you think the ground's getting a bit um, spent are they are they a bit hungry not growing so well no they last year it was just normal the year before that was normal it seems to i don't know whether the, the climate or things changing all around but um one thing that happened this year was we had a very, very dry spring, and that is when the trees are uh, just beginning to put their tr- their leaf out. Yeah. So it... It, it was dry and hot it, early, wasn't it? Yes, right? it was very yes. dry yeah. and hot early. So that, it might be just this year. It would be interesting to see what happens next year if we don't get the repeat mm. of that or if we get a different version of it to see what impact it has on those trees. It sounds like the root system, though, doesn't it, really? It, it sounds like there's, there's something, something that's not, the not happening properly. They don't, especially because it's happening to both trees that's next right. to each other. Yes. It sounds like there's some other factor going on. Mm. It, it, was there any trenching work done nearby or any other sort of disturbance last year? No, no. 
But uh, one of the neighbours said, with the sandy soil, when it rains, you know, it uh, you get moisture in the soil, but after a certain distance down, you almost get a crust. Yeah. Like, like it needs really three or four really heavy days of rain to actually break through that crust. Do you agree with that with some of the sandy soil? You get a crust sometimes yeah. down in the soil? Well, you can certainly get sandy soils becoming water repellent you know, when they dry out for a long time. And, and then when you do get any rain, it, it, it can run across the top. And then it can move through the soil profile really quickly once you do get some rain. So sandy soils are wetting, wetting agents yeah. for that saturate or, yep. or some of the liquid but uh, the, wetting agents. But the ironic thing is the little leaves on the pear tree and the little leaves on the liquid amber, they're probably about 40 feet apart. They look healthy, but it's almost like they've grown up to a certain stage and they've just stopped. So maybe the trees just in, in a safety. The trees are in a safety mode or something. Because well, I, I think it's mostly, most likely to be as a result of the odd season we've had that that yeah. that early. I mean, we had days that were thirty degrees in late September. That's then, right. You know, I mean, it, it went was from, crazy. from super wet, and you know we had a blast of wet in August, and then it went into summer almost automatically, and that would have been the stage of interruption for the for those trees breaking dormancy. Anyways, thank you uh, for your information. Persevere and see what happens next mm. springtime. Observations. And, and just you. quickly, aren't trees fantastic? Absolutely. Yes. Okay, bye. Bye. Greg, back to this gorgeous yellow flower that Virginia alluded yes. to. Yes, well, I've, I've held off for most of the show, uh, <laughs> and I have bought some oxalis in, like usual, because uh, <laughs> they're, well, they're starting to do their thing now. Yep. So um, I've got, uh, well, I don't know, five different species here today yes um the the yellow one that virginia was talking about is actually that's the first time i've seen it flower like it's open since i've bought it in the studio this, this morning is quite a moment yes it yeah so, moment. so it was in bud last it's... night when i got the pot out wow and it was in bud when i brought it in this morning into the studio and it's opened up while we've been on air uh and if you sort of look at the flower over the top it's it's got that sort of gold glittery things that some nareens have and and it sort of reflects reflects the light like uh it's got little a shimmer yeah it yes. sort of shimmers uh so it's a it's a very bright uh lemon yellow i guess um but one the, of the, the things that's so extraordinary about it is that ye lemon yellow against that foliage yeah so it's you got sort of olive olive the, the foliage is olive in color but it, they almost look like little plastic Lego palm trees or yeah. something. They're, looks they're like a cactus. Really strange, it does look like a cactus. Really actually. strange little succulenty yeah. looking leaves on it. Um, Where's it from? It's extraordinary. Well, it's one of the South African ones, uh, so it's summer dormant. Uh, 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 like some of the gladdies, the oxalis, uh, there's not a lot written about them, so it's actually hard to ID them correctly. And I know, again, on Facebook, there's some good groups for the oxalis, and even people who I look at as the authorities on these things aren't always sure what its real name is because it, no one knows. It's, yes. It sort of hasn't... There's no there's no um, monograph written on them or anything like that. So so there's not really any, you know, something that everyone can go to and say, OK, it's that OK, one. this is it. That's yeah. it, yeah. Did you originally source this as seed or as... No, no. Uh, uh, well, you, uh, the funny thing is the only seed you're allowed to bring in 
uh, at the moment are species that are already here, mm. uh, which include the, the weed ones. <laughs> so, you're, so you're allowed to import <laughs> seed off some of the weedy ones, but you can't oh, import dear. seed off the 795 species that mm. aren't. Um, uh, and so originally I would have got that one from Stephen Ryan. Uh, and most most of mine I, I probably got off Stephen over the years, yes. or, or Gary Reed, uh, and um, uh, but unfortunately, if it's not in Australia now, you're probably going to have trouble getting it because yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it's just a little bit restricted. And, uh, but you know that, that's uh, that's a really interesting leaf, and I've only ever seen it in leaf. And the, as I say, the flowers come out this morning; it looks fantastic. Well, that's that, that's a real coup, isn't it? I know. Yeah, yeah. I feel privileged. Uh, and, yes. and, and another one that's come out is uh, Faberfolia, which is a, a much softer lemon yellow. Um, and I've never seen that one flower before, and I've got lots of that. It's, but it's one of the oxalis that you sort of grow for the foliage, and the flowers are secondary. Palmafrons is another one with beautiful little palm, furry palm leaves that sit on the ground, and it's a great foliage plant, but I've not really seen it flower very much before. Okay. And Faber has got like, they're almost like rabbit ears, I guess. The, yeah. the leaves yes. are, are sort of bunny ears there's that a, stick up. It's quite a big leaf. A, there's a faint reminiscence of the, what we know as the, the sort of clover-like uh, yeah, of, of yep. the one that most people are yeah, familiar like with. Some of the, Each the one of these families. has got that basic structure, but they're so much more interesting yes, and, and yeah. linear and uh, colourful. And that's the interesting... You know, even these finer-leafed um, oxalis, if you actually look at them, they, they, they look like they're lots of individual leaves, but a lot of them have still got the three, uh, especially lower down on the plant, they've still got three fives, mm. uh, yes. sevens. Yes. Mm. Uh, they're, they're in the, the leaf... The leaf structure is sort of very similar through them all, even though they look different when you're looking at the whole plant. So uh, the taller one here that's sort of a movie colours Oxalis herder, which is one that multiplies really well, uh, but it doesn't spread at all. It's and it's very pretty. It's actually great for hanging baskets and rock walls and things okay. like that because you can see it's got quite the foliage on that's uh, you know six eight inches tall mm. and. As it, it's standing up now because it's only it's only shot up out of the ground in the last few weeks. Right. But as it, as it finishes flowering, the foliage will tend to flop over. So okay. if you've got it in a hanging basket or on top of a rock wall, it actually cascade over the wall a oh, little bit. Oh, lovely. And they form quite big clumps. And um, the other thing, you get autumn colour in spring. So as they're going into dormancy in springtime, you get these brilliant reds mm. and oranges and yellows mm. on the foliage if they're in, a, in an exposed site okay. uh, where, where they are. Um, so that, that's a good doer. And um, uh, quite a nice foliage plant too. And, and as I say, if you can dig it up every year and or every couple of years, you can dig them up and separate them and get quite a big display of them. Or if you're still scared of oxalis, you can stick them in a pot or just plant them in one spot and leave them and they're never going to move. They'll, they'll Some of those oxalis you've given me, Greg, to be scared of them, I have to nurture them. I don't. Them. D- yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Scared of losing them, yeah. not scared, not of, them scared going. of them taking over. <laughs> so, and and the little pink one here, which has also opened up this morning, is Oxalis glabra, um, and that has foliage like a little dwarf conifer. It's a great little rock garden or a pot pot oxalis. It multiplies really well, but again, it doesn't shift around at all unless you shift it. And and so a lot of the, the weedy ones that we think of as weeds. You see in old cemeteries, and I think I've said this before, you see them in cemeteries and you think, what a weed, it's all over the cemetery. But there's a bit of digging that goes on in cemeteries, and that's how they get spread. So right. if you plant those things, they might only discover, uh, cover a square metre or so if you plant them and leave them where they are. But if you're digging holes and shifting soil around everywhere, um, you'll shift the bulbs around too. Right. And that's that's where they spread around. And the other thing is they've been growing there for 100 years or so. So it's not like they've spread over the whole... 
area, uh, the whole cemetery in, in, in three year, years. Yeah, it's yeah. taken them 100, 100 odd years to, to do it. So they're really not that as weedy as... And they're the, thug, they're, they're the more thuggish ones that do sort of uh, move around a little bit. Um, so, yeah, the sort of thing, if you like them, you can dig them up and separate them because they multiply well and spread them out. But if you don't, you can just leave them in a nice little clump. And Glabra's got a, a hot pink flower with the yellow centre. I've got um, one in my bottom paddock, which has never moved. It's in one position in my bottom paddock, and it's it's very it's low and very bright pink, and okay. it's it's gorgeous. And that's flowering now. I haven't been down to that oh, paddock okay. for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that might be Rosea, one of the. Is it might grow in summer? I think it does grow. grow I think it is a summer grower. Yeah. I think it's Oxalis rosea. Or it does. Something. It doesn't spread. I've decided yeah. I'm going to dig it up and bring well, it see, up to the garden. Bring it closer where you can see. Yeah, I'm going to put it in the garden. Is it, is it very low? Very yeah, low very growing. Low, yeah. Yes. Oh, okay. I think that's the same I've seen in a couple of suburban lawns. Yes. And the flowers really close to the really close to the foliage. Okay. Yeah. No. I'm well thinking of. Yes. Very bright pink. So I'm going to dig it up and bring it up to the garden so I can get to know it. Why not? You um, mentioned about um, cemeteries being a, a, a source of yeah. interesting bulbs and plants. Yeah, I think it's a real shame that um, councils have uh, so addicted to Roundup. To spraying the, Because yeah. most cemeteries now, they, it's a desert. It looks like it's been napalm. Yeah. Um, there's uh, one up at Chewton, I, th- I think it's Chewton Cemetery, which uh, I used to uh, go and visit occasionally, especially in peak bulb season, because mm. there's Sparaxis and Nixias and... Yeah. Mm. Um, uh, you know, old freesias and oxalis growing everywhere, and and also native, you know, yeah. uh, those little native ephemerals that sort little of come up in, yeah, yeah, um, and yeah, I'd heard this was a really good cemetery, and you, and you go there, and it literally there wasn't a nothing green. Mm. It was so no, not even grass. to kill these weedy oxalis that are taking over everything. Uh, They've basically napalmed everything, including a lot of native species that were quite happily coexisting with these bulbs that made the place look beautiful. And now it just looks like a desolate, barren... It it literally looks like someone's gone through there with fire and Mm. and burnt everything out, and it's just dirt and bare stone and... and, uh, shine. Yes. um, You know, it it just doesn't make... You know, I'm sure there'd be some weedy plants in there that'll spread into the surrounding bush, and that needs to be controlled, but there's... uh, um, yeah, it'd be good if they figured out that some of these things aren't going to spread that far and they actually look quite nice with yeah. <laughs> Maybe we should leave them. Um, uh, yeah, so it's, it's a bit of a shame that they yeah. do. It's a source, a resource that we've kind of lost. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and, and I'm sure, you know, no one wants to spend eternity in, in something that's just barren dirt and, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it'd be nice if there was With a bit of greenery around. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Lots of plastic glass. <laughs> I've got this plant in my garden at the moment which is absolutely beautiful and I've asked lots of people to identify it. Eventually I got it identified... Oh, yeah, I think you showed me that one. Yes, on by the, Meg. Yeah. Well, I'm Salvia curious to Meg. Know it, is. it isn't a beautiful... It's it's rhinocanthus bezianum, mm. and it is. I saw it up at um, Mount Toma, which is part of the Ooh, Sydney no, yep. no, nose prickle, rhinocanthus. Rhinocanthus. <laughs> spiky nose. Yeah, spiky nose. <laughs> spiky <or something>. nose. <laughs> I, I've no idea because it's got quite a tropical looking leaf, and it's just the. It's very very white and a very unusual flower, and it's sort of got three petals. Mm. 
And it's in the botanic garden in the Chinese bed, which is why Meg knew it. Okay. When I and I asked Stephen and I asked Antique Perennials and I asked Greg. Yeah, yeah, no, I didn't know it was. And <laughs> I and I asked. Oh, I asked everybody I could find. But now problem solved. And but now Meg solved it, and it's so lovely, and I've propagated it quite easily. The oh, cuttings, right. or yeah, just cuttings, cutting? yeah. yeah right. And I'm really pleased with it. So I think it's so rather. It's growing in a, under some shade cover. I've got cool spot the first. Or? Yes, what I've done is I've my garden. When I plant, I think, how do you feel about north wind? That is my question. Um, because it's got quite a large leaf and mm. a very very green leaf, mm. I've put it so it faces east or south. And the east, which gets quite a lot of sun but no north wind, is it's very happy there. And it's about almost as tall as me. It sits outside my bedroom window looking beautiful. So I'm quite pleased with Rhinocanthus. Excellent. Excellent. Yes. Um, I've passed that across to you, Tim. Um, a query from the outside line. Can you read the writing? Yeah, I can. So it was Daniel that rang in. <coughs> uh, does Allocasurina toyolosa cause hay fever? I originally read that as hangover. Hay <laughs> <laughs> um, fever. Uh, the uh, neighbour doesn't want them planted because he suffers from hay fever. Apparently, this made uh, this has made the flower that caught. This has the. I wouldn't have thought it causes hay fever. I, I don't know for certain. I'm not a naturopath. Uh, I know the casuarinas, allocasurinas have uh, funny little leaves which are, the, you know, people might know the casuarina, the she-oaks, yes. with the needle-like, it's a native plant, grows in coastal areas with needle-like leaf. Um, the actual leaf that we know as needles are actually modified stems and the leaves are actually the tiny little, um, bits, at the little bits at the end and the segments. Um, plane not... trees, are there any plane trees locally? Because plane yeah. trees are a shocking problem. Yes, and it's that, and it's that fibrous, flowery mm. material that, that gets up people's noses. Look, I don't I don't have any experience of casuarinas being hay fever causing. I, I'm just thinking of their pollen that they shed because they're, they're, the male sheds the pollen. It's, I, I don't know. I don't know whether it is a hay fever causer or not and mm. I wouldn't want to say it or not. But I think having never heard of it, it's certainly not in populous notion no, that it is and I think it's unlikely. Mm. Um, and Whereas we do know that the plane trees are causing plane trees. real I, problems. Calistamins get me badly. When I was a kid we had a, a calistamin in the front yard and it would make me sneeze, sneeze like crazy and puff up. Grass pollens are obviously the, the biggest one. Mm. Um, but I don't know. I'd probably... I'd probably look that one up with a. We'll talk to a herbalist or a, yes. or a naturopath yes. about that, and see if they've. Um, they might have met with other people yeah. who've had the, a yeah. similar problem from it. Okay, we'll um, quickly go to uh, Ray, who's down in Cape Patterson. Good morning, Ray. Uh, good morning to everybody. Um, my question this morning is regarding um, a Washington naval orange tree. Uh, it's probably five, six years old. And I'm starting to get uh, the the fruits coming on now, but it's uh, I've had three oranges at, uh, at the moment where they're splitting top to bottom. And uh, can you help me with that one? Okay, so tell me about the tree itself, where it's growing, and what sort of conditions. Uh, yes, it's um, it's along a driveway, and uh, we've got sandy soil. But the tree's pretty well mulched and uh, it's watered pretty regularly and fed, oh, I give it about, about twice a year, just give it some, uh, some food. So it sounds like it's pretty healthy, it's growing quite happily. It, it looks good and it's green and the, the fruit's coming on 
and, and this happened last year. Um, I don't get too many, but it's up just a few, um, and they're, they're splitting from top to bottom. And is the fruit nearly ripe? It wouldn't be yet, I wouldn't think. Not yet. It's start, they're starting to yellow now. I'm, I'm wondering about irregular watering. Yeah, I think I, that's the usual cause of splitting fruit is it when is. you've got it goes, it, 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 it's dry for a while, then you get a heavy watering and you get that burst of, of moisture or water through the tree, and it happens on a lot of fruit, mm. is that then you'll get the rind splitting because it's swelling. That's and it can right. sometimes happen after a heavy rainfall event too. Yeah. Yep. I water about uh, or n- nearly every, every second Sunday. That's a sort of riff regime I've been watering. It sounds fairly regular. Look, the um, the other thing around it could be, I mean, it's only its, it's first or second fruiting. Sometimes the fruit can be a bit odd in the first year or two of fruiting. Especially uh, if there's a lot of it. Sometimes yeah. you need to thin the fruit down so that the, the tree not gets... That, not that many. Um, there's, there's, there's a few, but it's not... Uh, you, you wouldn't call it uh, overladen by any, by any means. Okay. I think I think... Look, I'd, I'd be concentrating on the watering. It sounds like mm. you're doing a fairly regular watering pr- uh, regime. I'd just be making sure that when you're doing that, every if you're watering every couple of weeks or once a month, but you're doing it with a heavy, deep watering, so that there and you're and you're well mulched, that you should yeah. be tempering the fluctuations in water in the soil, and that should temper the the splitting, which is the main main reason I know of that that fruit will split. Yeah. Um, what would you suggest about the feeding? What sort of uh, uh what sort of regime? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'd be feeding twice a year. I'd be feeding going into spring. So as the, if you remember, citrus roots don't do anything much over the winter time. That's right. You no. want, you want, if you're planting a new citrus tree, you plant it into soil that's warming up. Um, so, and that's when they're in active growth. And so I'd be giving them a feed in the uh, in the early spring, and then I'd probably giving them a feed kind of around February for that last little yeah. tonic before they shut down for the winter. Yeah, I've been feeding them about the February and uh, uh, September. Yeah, that's yeah, about right. Yeah, that's yep. fine. Yep. Okay. So you, you think it's just the watering is, but would be... Uh, I think that's the most likely. That, that, that's the usual cause of splitting in fruit. Yep. But uh, that's really what you said this morning is just what I'm doing. Mm. Yes. Yeah, so let's see how it goes next year. So because it's only producing its first couple of crops, sometimes the crop can take a couple of years to settle into its true pattern. Uh, So I'd say continue what you're doing, observe it next year. If you still get it next year, then then I'd be looking at whether there's whether it's about balancing the nutrients, maybe doing looking at your soil type, looking at how the water's getting into your soil. Okay. What about trace elements? Should I be looking at putting some of those in? Uh, it won't hurt. I mean, but it, if you've got, if and citrus are very good indicators of if they've got deficiency because you start to get yellowing between the veins and the leaves and those sorts of things. If yeah. the if the leaves are green and glossy and it's growing happily, it's I think you don't have any problem. Yeah. yeah. All right. Okay. That's great. Okay. Good day. Thank you and good luck. Thank you. Okay. Right. Bye. Bye. We don't have much longer to go, but um, we must talk about this one before you leave. I won't that, let you get out of the studio. Yeah, that's until we a, talk about it. A, an Ampelopsis, Ampelopsis breva pedunculata, which is a, a nice mouthful of that's a name. That's a good dinner party <laughs> conversation it's, piece. It's a grape relative, so it's a very vigorous vine. If you're in really high rainfall areas, um, which I'm not, it, it can be it can seed around. Okay. I know in some, certain parts of uh, northern USA and Canada, it's a bit of a noxious weed. Right. Um, but it, so it's it's a grapevine-like plant. 
And later in the summer, early autumn, it starts producing these little berries, which is its common name's a porcelain vine. And uh, so it has these little clusters of flowers like a grape that form these berries that go through different colour stages a bit late in the season now. And so uh, usually these little uh, clusters are laden with fruit. Right. Um, they sort of start off a greeny colour, then they sort of go a purpley brown, then they go bright purple, and then when they're fully ripe, they're a porcelain blue. And... Uh, I always used to refer to it as "Don't Eat Me Blue," um, but yeah. it turns Seer out they're actually blue. edible. Yeah, really. Yeah, uh, they don't taste very nice, but <laughs> they're. Uh, I've seen your daughter eat one. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's just a little sweet kick uh, in the fleshy part, and um, and if you bite into the seed, it's like eating grape seeds. It's just really yes. bitter and bitter. Uh, yep. and they're mainly seeds. So they, I'm sure, if uh, they were hybridised, you could probably come up with something with a decent sized fruit on it, but. Essentially, even though they're not poisonous, I, I'm not sure that you'd go. But out the blue of the of the, the berry blue is yeah, beautiful. It's an amazing so, colour. It's yeah. incredible colour. And they and they last for quite a few months. As I say, they they sort of start colouring up. Uh, I don't know, mid mid February, I guess. So you get the first sort of blue coming through, and the birds love them. Mm. But there's that many on it that the birds can eat it, and two days later, it's covered in blue fruit again. It's these little blue berries again, and the autumn colours are nice. A, a nice sort of soft buttery yellow so it's okay. a, it's actually a really good companion plant for an ornamental grape because the the soft buttery yellow underneath that hot fiery oranges yes, and reds and, yes. and those dark burgundies on a on a grape ornamental grape um it's a nice sort of contrast a light golden uh contrast to those darker colors right um, i've got the variegated one yeah, that's pretty too, yeah. But it's been incredibly slow growing. Yeah. I don't know if it's... I it's mean, my soil quite is quite heavy, think, yeah. but it's been so slow. Yeah. Um, yeah, so so they... But the, I don't know if, the, if the, the variegated one's not quite as vigorous or not, but the, this one certainly is. Mine and, and is mine is especially because it's got access to... It's in my little bonsai house. <laughs> it gets all the... Uh, it gets all the wa- excess water from the misting system there, so... Uh, Why is it there? Uh, it's, ha- it's it's quite happy out in the cold. Oh yeah yeah mm. yeah. And I oh, know no, it's not inside it. It's oh, right. growing over the top of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's getting all the benefit yeah, yeah. of the it's water. Yes, it's, exactly. That's why it's done Silly so me. well. Yeah. It's got access to the water from underneath the bonsai house. Okay. Yeah. We have run out of time for yet another week. Um, a huge thank you to the team this morning. Um, I do appreciate you coming in on a, particularly on what proved to be a bit of a foggy drive for some of us. But, um, yes, we'll be back, of course, uh, next week. A big thank you, too, to Rosemary and Liz, who've been handling all the phone calls. Uh, Tune in next week at 7.30. Until then, bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.